New Year. Small Fortune Podcast listeners, thank you for joining me. It is 2024. And in the wine business in January, I think more so than any other industry, it is time to pause for and reflect. The vineyards are quiet. The wines are put down. Uh, we've gotten through OND, October, November, December, which is the peak sales period in the wine industry. So it very much is a time to reflect. And the only constant in business is change. And uh, what are we going to do new this year? How are we going to improve our businesses is the thought. And this time last year, my thought was, it's time to fish or cut bait on that podcast idea, Carol. So I had set the goal that I was either going to do it or stop talking about it. And uh, we did it. And I want to thank Jacqueline for coming along on the ride with me. It's uh, been challenging and fun. And I'm hoping that somebody or maybe more than one person will get good ideas that will be helpful to them in their business or their profession in listening to the podcast. Today, we're talking to Paul Kalamkiarian. He is uh, the owner until recently of the original Wine of the Month Club. And his father started the business in the 70s. He carried it through until selling it last year. And he has this amazing perspective, the entire arc of the sale of wine direct to consumer in his business. It's different than a winery selling direct to consumer, but the the vectors, the means of communication are the same. And so listening to his very interesting discussion about how that has evolved to, to today, I think is very helpful to anybody in business, and certainly anybody who hopes to have a online presence. Because I think what uh, I heard from Paul, and you perhaps will agree with me, is that the new stuff, the new ways, the online, the platforms, they don't, they're not working anymore. They're broken, the trash heap, and it's impossible to break through. And Paul talks about some old ways uh, that he uh, did business that yielded much more robust experiences uh, and relationships. And, and so uh, I think we do have to go back to the drawing board a bit and figure out new ways. And uh, so listen to this, see if you get some ideas through the conversation. I'm not going to do this often, but I am going to plug a project that my business partner is working on that relates directly to the idea of direct-to-consumer sales, the, the, the idea that a person-to-person -person sale is a more um, permanent relationship than uh, one acquired online. Uh, and so uh, Andy Steinman has a project. If you have scale, we'll put his contact information in the show notes, reach out to him and, and see if this is a, a business opportunity that's of interest to you. And um, enjoy the interview and thanks for listening. Good morning and happy new year, podcast listeners. Today, I'm very pleased to have with me Paul Kalamkiarian. And Paul, I invited him here. He is the until recently, owner of the original Wine of the Month Club, at the which is in fact I think the original direct-to-consumer retail wine selling enterprise that his father founded, and he is also now in his newest enterprise a professional podcaster. So I think this is going to be an engaging conversation. Paul, thank you so much for joining me. Glad to be here after all this time together. And professional <laughs> could be I don't know maybe that's a loose term, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Wine of the Month Club was 50 years old this past year, right? It turned 52 in March of 20, 
uh, I said 51 in March. We always looked at the year ahead. So I call it 52 in March of 2023. Yes. And so I did invite you here to talk about the DTC because you guys, your father originally, and then you, once you took over the company, wrote the entire history of direct-to-consumer. And there's been so many changes. And when you and I worked together, I was just so impressed with your sort of unbelievable knowledge of DTC. And it's so important in the wine business. I thought I, we, we really ought to share what you know. But this is also a podcast about small business ownership and entrepreneurship. So I thought we'd start at the general and then get to the specific and start because you took over your family business, one of your family's businesses. Your dad was an incredible entrepreneur from all from all reporting. And what did you learn from your dad about business? Are there any things, what to do or what not to do? What were the lessons learned that he imparted to you? That's an interesting question because you know, my dad was a merchant. Armenians are merchants. I could own a 7-Eleven or a carpet store or wine being launched in Armenia at least 6,000 years ago. Uh, but my dad was a merchant, so he came to this country. And I, I have great respect for uh, immigrants who come here because of the the new land and the new world to carve a, carve a niche for themselves. And he came here with the proverbial 50 bucks and uh, got his master's degree in, in pharmacology and started uh, his path in his career, which ended up in the wine sector, which is such an amazing business to be in. So from those lessons, watching him run his stores, watching him, I was the son that aligned myself with my dad. He was, we had the same sense of humor, work ethic. I would catch him at two in the morning, getting up to go to work. I would catch him, but he would you know, maybe wake me up to make sure I knew he was going to work. <laughs> uh, there was a, a work ethic there that he had that was fabulous. He gave me a car once in 1986. It had 330,000 miles on it because he had driven from store to store every week to make sure the stores are being run properly. And so that tenacity in business is so important. He was, I think because of his immigration status and because he came here with nothing, he, he had no fear, huge lesson in business, particularly in, in our sector. And I think lately with the women and wine subject, you can't have any fear and you have yeah. to live with your decision-making and whether you make a good one or a bad one, you are stuck with it. And can't blame anybody else but yourself. I remember he fired a guy back in the day who was in charge of payroll for the wine shop. And he gave himself a 25 cent raise. And my dad said, that ain't happening and fired him. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> you got to be uh, hands on, too, is what I hear from that story. And I really think that's true. I think absentee ownership it can be done. But being there counts for a lot. It's everything, at least in that realm. He got to six pharmacies that he ran live at one time, bought and sold 12, including the wine shop. And six was about as much as he could do. Now that could be a curse. The merchant mentality doesn't allow you to give away control sometimes. And so that's the wall you hit. Eventually you can't do it all. But for our family, that was, that's the way it was. And that's what we learned. And that's how we ran. Yeah. Super impressive. And yeah, I think you're the first person I've talked to for the podcast of all 10 of them, that uh, took over a company from your father, from a family member. And I don't know if there were any lessons learned about how that went. Were there any problems between you and your dad in the transition or did it all go smoothly? What would you recommend people look out for if they're looking at taking over the family business? Uh, that's a tough one. We didn't have any problems. My dad had complete trust. And maybe that's, that is the lesson in the day that he decided 
that I had learned enough. Now, you can't just walk into, and I've had this conversation a lot, into a business you've not been trained to do. And I don't mean trained specifically in the industry, but trained to handle all the eventualities that will happen in any business. So I came from corporate America out of college where I learned the large picture marketing strategies and the best sales organization in America at the time was Xerox Corporation. And so I got to go in the streets, how to report to your manager, how to run reports, how to make reports, how to predict sales, how to manage the territory of sales. And then I went to what would be the smallest company anybody could have. And many of your listeners won't even know that what a Commodore 64 is, but we had a company that had a Commodore 64, no office. I had a fishbowl full of business cards and I had no idea what the software did when we started. And so I went from complete protection of corporate America to absolute bootstrap decision making <laughs> with nothing to work from. And so you take those two together. And when your father comes and says, Hey, I've got this idea. Why don't you come and take check out the wine of the month club? I felt completely prepared. So it's not just, you can't just walk into a business and hope it works. You have to have your background in my opinion to take on whatever it might be completely new industry. Of course, I had stocked the shelves of my father's store for years, and I reflect on that all the time today. But as far as the mechanics of the company, it was all brand new. And so tell us now about Wine of the Month Club, which uh, is how you and I met. I, I had not been or have not been a retail wine club customer, so I, did, I knew no, nothing about it. And in the process of working with you, I learned not not enough to run one, but enough to to know how hard it is. And and I thought it would be interesting if you could just tell the, the DTC story. You guys started, how you started selling direct to consumer out of the shop and how that evolved uh, into the catalog, et cetera. I have a, a fried clutch in a three on the tree <laughs> stick shift van because the first deliveries I ever made, that first day I got my license, I was delivering my father's selections for the month to the local residents. That's because my dad was actually getting tired of walking from the pharmacy, which was connected to the wine shop to advise people on buying wines. So he started to choose wines at the beginning of the month and put them on display. What's interesting though, at that time, you didn't taste wine when people came into your wine shop to put on the shelf. The liquor salesman came in, he's selling Jack Daniels, selling Jim Beam. And he says, oh, by the way, I have a Mandavi Cabernet. You're going to put it on the shelf. And my dad decided, no, I'm not putting it on the shelf unless I taste it. And that was completely bizarre nouveau to, to the sales force. And so he started tasting everything on Tuesdays, actually, which is, I did that until the end of my career. So he was selecting the wines at the beginning of the month because he was tired of walking back and forth. He was, he had prescriptions to fill. <laughs> but he soon found out that people coming in the wine shop were happy and wanted to party. And the people coming to the pharmacy were sick and ailing. And wow, this looked like a lot more fun to do on a permanent basis. And eventually what happened was many executives from the aerospace uh, industry lived in Palos Verdes where the wine shop was moved out and a lot to Huntsville, Alabama, actually when TRW left. So he, they would just say, Hey, Paul, we enjoyed those selections. Why don't you just ship them to us? So you're talking like 19, probably the mid seventies, early, late seventies that that started happening. It didn't matter. Nobody cared. UPS picked up the box. You pulled on the manifest as a handwritten manifest. There were no rules. It was illegal probably as far as UPS and shipping across straight lines for alcohol, but nobody really cared. 
It wasn't mm-hmm. a revenue source for tax base for a state. You just did it. And that probably ran for through the 80s that nobody really cared what you were shipping. But that's how it that's how it got built to the point where he realized I think he had about 400 members that he could sustain that way. And these are all, by the way, people that walked into the wine shop. These were not solicited through a catalog, a mail order campaign of any sort. It was all handshake at the counter. And that's a good customer to have. But he sold the pharmacy chain and moved the Wine of the Month Club to a little shack in Redondo Beach and had this lofty idea that he would bring in a packer for a week and a, a woman to bill or a person to bill the credit cards once a week and he'd go home for two weeks. <laughs> that didn't work. <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't observe any of that in your <laughs> daily life. When... <laughs> misguided, but that's how it was founded. One day, and this is the progression of your question, which is the DTC side of things and currently where we're at with the internet and, and email marketing, but there wasn't obviously none of that then. And so somebody told him, he was setting up booths at lawyer shows and doctor shows and was unsuccessful there standing at a booth because doctors and lawyers know wine already, or at least they felt like it. And somebody said, you need to go to the LA County fair, 21 day show. Long story short, he got in for free the first year, 20 by 20 booth, set it up with a bunch of empty boxes and doubled his membership in 20 days. And this, wow, this was something else. This is 1984. And he quickly got on the fair circuit, which I didn't end until 2007. Wow. Yeah. So we ran fairs for 24 years. In my last year, I did 75 shows, in-person shows in 52 weeks. And those would be were at county fair type things? County fairs, the Taste of LA, Taste of Hollywood, the Oregon State Oregon State Fair, the Oregon State Seafood Festival, the Washington State Seafood Festival, gun shows, boat shows, home improvement shows. I had three crews at one time with three trucks, and they'd had a booth, and they'd set it up, and then they'd break it down, and they'd come home. And these were good customers. This is the problem with today's DTC world. These were handshake customers. They heard the story firsthand. They were they got to see the bottles and hold them. They got to hear the story from the salesperson. That was a relationship, which is mimicked today, if not even more embedded today, in the wine tasting room experience that a winery would have with a member who signs up at a tasting room. Right. So this is why the club was successful. Our attrition rate was very low. It was a two-year member minimum if they shook, if you shook their hand at the shows. That was a different world than today. Yeah. I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure if you tried to do that today, if it would work, if people would be more um, hesitant and less cooperative handing a credit card over at a show like that. I don't know if it would work or not. Yeah, I don't know. But maybe somebody listening is going to give it a try, though, because Lord knows getting attention on the increasingly crowded and frankly, rapaciously managed Google, et cetera is getting really hard. So you, you built it through, oh, <laughs> I like the way you describe it, almost like a mobile tasting room and a process going out in the country. And and then at a certain point in time, it became an email game a bit, did it not? Or catal- well, you went prior- to cat- catalogs then email? How did, how yeah, did that? Prior to that, we became a cataloger. That was back in the day with the, the music clubs. You could pay a dollar, you get 10 CDs, but you got to buy six more at full price. The book of the month was running very strongly. Oddly, if you, you can imagine book of the month and the 
music clubs did not even take credit cards. So the overhead of check processing is ridiculous, particularly today. But back then, they didn't even take credit cards. We started cataloging, so to speak. We were doing direct mail. I ended up on an average uh, year would mail about a million pieces of mail. and But I knew I was going to get at least six-tenths of a percent. Can you imagine that number? Six-tenths of a percent. Not even one percent, six-tenths. But if I got six-tenths of a percent response, I, I was profitable. And that's because the longevity of the customer was very long. That was two years. Again, there was a relationship being built at that time in the mail that was much stronger than today. So we did that for, I don't know, 15 years, a million pieces, a couple of years, I crossed over a whole point response. So if I mailed a hundred thousand pieces, I would get a thousand members out of that. You were testing lists back in the day. You were testing cigar lists. You were testing Victoria's Secret, which was a very successful list for us at the time. Food and Wine Magazine lists, all kinds of lists that you would do. That was That's what today's equivalent of Facebook marketing testing is. It was in the mail. But it was very reliable and predictable until the internet and Groupon. And all of a sudden, the Groupon culture clicked in and so you couldn't rely on longevity because everybody's looking for the free stuff. Yeah. So we would give away four crystal goblets, an extra bottle of wine, and then another bottle of wine for 99 cents or something. I forgot what the total offer was, but those people weren't sticking around. They were hmm. lasting three months. Some were canceling. Some would try and cancel, Carol. You wouldn't believe this. On the same phone call that they signed up, <laughs> thinking, thinking that we were obligated to send them something for free because they went in that order. They'd call, I want to sign up, then they before they, I want to cancel. They would think we were obligated to sell it to them. I'm like, no, we're not doing that. Yeah, the current business model where you can have a mattress for a year and return it is it baffling to me. Exactly. So I, well, <laughs> I you mean, live you on know. the fact that you're not gonna, there's not gonna be any complaints. We had very little complaints about the quality. It was strictly up until 1997 when we got on the web that culture started to kick in. So we stopped mailing, I can't remember now, 2014 or something, because the res response rate was still good. We were still getting three quarters of a point, but they weren't lasting three to six months and you had to get nine months to break even. So Got it. that became very expensive. And then the the transition to this, to the email, was there anything different between the, the email campaigns versus the mail campaigns? Is and so then, the email campaign, when we started collecting email addresses with those same campaigns, those same, we added the email field to the mailers. So that we had many years of email addresses being accumulated. We weren't using them necessarily. And email was different than today. You opened everything. There was no spam that didn't exist. Uh, it was, that was very successful with a very low cost of acquisition also for retention, reaching out to a customer, letting them know you're still here as today. Like today, I must have gotten 10 emails from various wine companies and you only open the ones you want. But back then you opened everything. Almost everybody did. Yeah. And so one of the, one of the related stories I tell is that I did amazing buys back in those days. And there's still some very good ones to have, but these were people that started wine businesses that didn't understand and they would be stuck with inventory. And I made amazing deals on really amazing stuff. There was one particular Napa Valley Cabernet that I got. I think I sell it for $6.99, $6.99. But this wow. was pedigreed stuff. I sold 10,000 bottles in 72 hours on email. Wow. And we could sell anything. 
But if I had that same wine today, and I'm not, I'm, and I'm talking still at six ninety nine. If I had that same wine today, and I put that email out to two hundred fifty thousand email addresses, I might sell five hundred bottles. Wow! So the response rate, the open rate, the conversion rate is just it, purely from I think the density of the messaging that's going on out there in the world between email and, and social. Yeah, and then the then the next evolution that you saw in all of this DTC. And of course, as I hear you talk about the, the production side of it, I think oh, I'll have to have you back to talk about how you did that side of the business because it's very complicated in, in right. every respects what you did. But sticking with the DTC, the online stuff, you were one of the, you got wineofthemonthclub.com. You were an early adopter of technology and you're very knowledgeable about it. So tell us about how the evolution of the online has gone in your experience. I feel like an idiot uh, because I didn't, corner at that time being just an honest guy who just goes about his business any freaking url that had wine in it i should have gotten because it would have been worth a fortune to sell them off again and been a cottage industry but we didn't do that we just figured that's the name of our company google has considered that the top return an organic return since we started because wine of the month is in the name URLs and the number one search term for people to find our service was always wine of the month or wine of the month club. But it's interesting. Wine.com started during the boom, the bust. Yeah. The bust. Yeah. The first, like the late nineties. Yeah. So the first term, its first name was virtualvineyards.com. And I was fortunate enough to go to two uh, seminars. One was a marketing seminar on virtual vineyards. And the other one was a financial seminar raising capital for virtual vineyards. And the one, the financial one, they were trying to pitch the idea that they wanted to to uh, do a million dollars a year, but then they tell their investors, "We don't know how." <laughs> and I don't. I think that's the same story today, right? So you ask the same question, and you're going to get probably the same answer. The interesting point at that point was that my company was four customer service reps and one IT guy, and then my packing department and Wine.com or VirtualVineyards.com was one customer service rep and four IT guys and their packing department. So. I, I realized there, when I heard that information, I go, wait a minute, we're probably getting away from my model and getting into their model. And that's just the way it's going to go. But they burned through $400 million before they landed on what's today's wine.com, which right. suffers from the same struggles that anybody online does, but wine has bad margins, so it's even tighter. So that sort of early adoption came from keeping my ears open and being invited to these seminars and realizing, yeah, there's something going on here and we need to be on there. I would love to use Wayback or whatever that website is where you go back and look at pages from sites. It was awful, but it was a shopping cart. They didn't have canned shopping carts like Shopify and Magento and those things back then. You wrote it. We wrote our own little shopping cart and you could sign up for the club and you could order wine and kind of cruise along. And we didn't revamp it until 2007. We ran it for 10 years that way. But it and, was lucrative. No, go ahead. It was just lucrative then. It was so new, right? And then by the time, as you decided, made the decision to retire, you and your wife, Sandra, who I should mention is elbow to elbow with you in this business. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, she was amazing. As you guys look towards retiring from this business, it seemed as though a couple of dynamics were happening. And one of them gets back to the, the wisdom of Wall Street money, 
that there was a period here towards, say, in the last seven or eight, 10 years where Wall Street was looking for growth for growth's sake. And so there were a, a number of players in the who came into your industry, which had been lots of small, profitable, sustainable businesses like yours and others. And then this Wall Street money kind of bigfoots in and starts taking market share. That was my 30,000 uh, foot view of what was happening in the industry and, and still is. And then, of course, they got the message 12 months ago, oh, wait, growth? No, we want profit. And that's when everything got really dicey again. <laughs> but uh, what, what what was your experience of that whole this you know, end of cycle online sales? Wine is a very romantic product and we all want to be part of it. And as you and I know, we see uh, this kind of problem come and go, particularly on your side where you see people buying wineries, thinking that they're going to have this lifestyle they see in the picture books, but it doesn't exist really. And that's not what it is about. But so there were many paths at the time. One of them was a company called Gearlings and Wade, which was a public company started by two accountants. They had, they were the first to the street with out-of-state shipping that was legal. They had warehouses in different states. They were doing the whole three-tier process for the listeners. That's the whole alcohol issue post-prohibition. And they came to visit me in 19... 97 or 98, uh, the gentleman just passed away, unfortunately, he's a great guy. And they offered to buy the company for $10 million, but they wanted to trade stock. And the stock was at like 12 bucks at the time. And it ended up going to 50 cents in the next 12 months. And then it went out of business. So thank goodness I was smart enough not to do that. You wow. know, or at least hesitant stuff. But that was the first sort of debacle after the wine.com thing that kind of occurred beer across America was a large beer online beer service. They went to 20 million in sales and went bankrupt because of overhead that they didn't predict because of attrition. So we've seen this happen over and over, over again. Yes. The proliferation of clubs and the idea that this is the billion dollar baby hit a lot of people. Some have survived, like the Wall Street Journal Club has survived, but the LA Times Club didn't. The New York Times Club struggles. The Sunset Magazine Club struggle. All these brands, Bon Appetit had a club. They all had clubs. Mm. They've all failed because it's not about that. It's about quality product delivered, trusting, trust built it between the relationships between the vendor and the client. And that even then doesn't guarantee you enough to not have to go buy the next customer. And that's the problem in our industry is how much does it cost to find that new customer? And let's say it's a hundred bucks, then you've got to find a way to get that hundred dollars back. Plus then when the next 12 to 15 months, goes, it's a Ponzi scheme at that point. Yeah. And it was never easy, but it, it seems to be near impossible right now with what's going on online, that the platform is taking a bigger chunk and leaving so little for the, their actual customers. Uh, they have you have to pay so much to get that one customer off of Google or or, or whatever source. The, the problem is, it comes down to a quality proposition, and I've had these conversations at late because of the retirement. Actually, I have more honest conversations with directly with my old competitors, and I've learned a lot <laughs> in the last few <laughs> months. <laughs> but what's really the problem? And we knew this back then, but the margins are not good in this industry, as we all know, and so. In order to do what these people are doing, and, and Santa and I were talking yesterday, we were both looking at our phones saying, I have gotten at least six uh, wine club solicitations, three of them from brand new companies trying to sell, including the Wine of the Month Club, my old company. 
and they were selling a $10 bottle cases. I showed you that ad, $120 a case, which was interesting. But then right next to it was an ad that came out and you get this, you get another case of wine for $69.99. Then there's another club that was right after that, that was doubling the first shipment. So effectively 50% off. And that's, you're, you're going to mire yourself in discounting for the rest of your life if you play that game and mm -hmm. you can't afford it. So you borrow the you borrow the acquisition cost from the next uh, load of cash you bring in and eventually run out like Wink did. Wink went public and a year later they were out of business completely because they couldn't sustain the acquisition cost of that customer. They weren't getting it back. And so what ends up happening is the quality has to go down because there's, you can't blood, squeeze blood from a turnip. So eventually what you're finding online now are wines that cost these people 50 cents a liter. And for the consumer, that's $4.50 worth of wine in a case, a whole case. And you just, it's just not going to be good. You can't be good. It's impossible. The formula doesn't work. And so you end up with a fancy bottle with a cute label, maybe even a silkscreen bottle, but with what's inside is just not any good. And you're going to oh, lose that customer. Yeah, it's uh, not sustainable. So not I sustainable. congratulate you for your very long and successful uh, operating of a successful retail wine club. And well, Wine of the Month Club is iconic. I, before we wrap up, because I'm only a half an hour, <laughs> you have an hour-long podcast called Wine Talks with Paul K., which for my uh, small fortune listeners, I highly recommend. It is Paul covers the history of wine and in and talks with amazing people from all over the world. And so please go look for that. And Paul, do you have any other projects you're working on? I, I don't see you hearing your dad's story. I don't see you just uh, putting your feet up and having a cocktail. No, yeah, I've got uh, stirring all kinds of projects, but one of them is a, a visual version of my podcast, which is these stories have to be brought to the table because wine is about the story. Like I said, you're going to lose the you're going to lose the game if you're looking at trying to sell wine at fifty cents a liter, because behind that bottle of wine is a real story, and those are the wines that I want people to enjoy and understand and relish. And when you go to next to your wine tasting in Napa Valley, wherever you go, you're going to remember that forever when you get the next bottle of wine. So look for we have just one of the names is Message in the Bottle. The other one's called Through the Grapevine. And all I need is somebody out there in your group that has a lot of money and wants to fund it. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> Maybe uh, they'll get, you'll get the call, Paul. I'll put your contact information that. in the episode notes. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Hi, Small Fortune listeners. If you found this episode enjoyable, we'd really love to have you as a follower. And we're on almost all of your favorite podcast platforms. So if you could take a moment and subscribe or follow, we'd really appreciate it. Also, if you have any questions for Carol, please email us at smallfortunepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks. All right. So when you're ready... I was already. Okay. I'm right. born. I'll die. You're ready. born ready. All right. I, good. I changed right. it. To I'll die ready because I'll never get there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Congratulations. <laughs>